the final poetic book, and I'll tell you, if you've been with us through Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, now Song of Solomon, some tough ground, but yet rich ground as we dig into the Word of God. Some of the Word of God is just very simple to understand. It's just right there in front of you, and it doesn't take a lot of digging. But there's other parts of the Scriptures that God wants you to dig. And in that digging, we find Him. We discover things that are far richer than had it just been right there laid out for us. And then after the Song of Solomon, we are into the prophets. And uh, boy, some great and exciting stuff there as we dive into Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel. But tonight we are in the Song of Solomon and we are in chapter 2. And we're picking up tonight in verse 8. Now, as you remember, this book is a quite controversial book. Some believe that it's simply a manual on romance and sex in the marriage. Matter of fact, Jews were not allowed to read it until they were 30 years of age because of the sensual nature of it. But within it, I believe, is an allegory of God and Israel, and more importantly for us, the allegory of Christ and the church. And we saw last week there, as back and forth, almost like a play, they're speaking one to another. Solomon is speaking to his Shulamite wife, this gal from Lebanon, who her brothers were mean to her, made her work out in the field, and she felt that she was all dark, because she was all suntanned, and 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 turned dark and black, literally is the word. And of course today you'd say, wow, great tan. Back in those days it was a, not a compliment, but yet he comforts her and tells her that he just thinks she's absolutely beautiful and her cheeks and her neck are beautiful. And, and uh, of course all of this is a picture of Christ and the church. And we pick up tonight in chapter 2, verse 8. Now the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. This is the wife speaking, and she's saying, I hear his voice. He's coming to me, and he's leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. When you look in the scriptures of mountains and hills, it's often typified of difficulties, of hardship, of trials. And here he comes, just skipping, leaping through the difficulties of this life, overpowering the enemy winning in the battle. And he is coming to me, this victorious one is coming, this one of triumph, this one of victory. And my beloved is like a gazelle, she's saying of him, or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the window, gazing through the lattice. So she hears his voice. He's this victorious one. He is coming unto her, and he's outside the wall, and he's calling to her, wanting her to come to him, but she's in bed, and she doesn't want to get out of bed, and even though he sees her, she hears his voice and sees him trying to look in to get eye contact there, my beloved spoke and said to me in verse 10, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. Now I believe as we study this chapter, Somebody's, Satan's using somebody's cell phone right now. (laughs) 
Okay, let's make it. Let's make it official. If you have a cell phone, shut it off. Do you know it's off, or you think it's off? It's your Richard. Is it off? Okay, very good. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot or anything, but there are certain responsibilities with sitting on the front row, and that's that's one of them. Is you have to let the pastor pick on you from time to time. <laughs> I do love the youth up here in the front, and I can't wait. We get our new building. We're going to have that whole area out in front. You can come and just sit there or lay down and listen to the Bible study. Not sleep, though. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he says, rise up, my love, my fair one. Now, I think as you study this chapter, you'll see that this is the first time where the church is being raptured, is being caught up to be with the Lord. Because he goes on to say, for lo, the winter is past. The hard times are over. The rain is over and gone, and the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And so here, all of a sudden, the hard times, the difficult season is over, and all of a sudden, it's springtime and a time of rejoicing. And then notice in verse 13, the fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vine with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now I believe this second time it's mentioned in it, it's referring to the Israel at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus said in Matthew 24, He said, Now learn this parable of the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so here we see this same exact analogy that Jesus gave, saying, hey, you can know that the tribulation period is coming. You know that the rapture is coming. And then right after that, you know that the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period is upon us. And notice what he says in verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock. There it is. In the rock city of Petra. The, those during that tribulation period are going to hide there. And they're being hid by the hand of the Lord from the Antichrist and from all the, of the uh, bowls of God's wrath that are pouring upon the earth. And in that secret places of the cleft, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. And your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And so now it's as if he's coming at the end of that tribulation period in verse 13 and 14. And he's speaking now to Israel saying, I see you there in that rock city of Petra, and I, you're lovely to me. And there, for a thousand years, he repopulates the earth in that millennial reign. But now he warns us, in verse 15, before you come away, before that time happens, he says, catch us the foxes. You know, the little foxes that spoil, or the word is, destroy the vines. Radical. For our vines have tender grapes. He says, protect the fruit. Watch out for the fruit. What's going to spoil it? What's going to destroy the fruit? It's just those little foxes doing their little work, but yet destroys the vine. 
Turn with me, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 24, and then we'll look to Luke 21. And Jesus warns us in the same way about those little foxes. He says there in verse 36 of Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows. Matthew 24, verse 36. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who is the faithful and wise servant? Verse 45 now whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two, and appoint him as portion with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here the Lord says, get ready, be ready, make sure you're ready. And there are certain people who become unfaithful because of the length of time of waiting. It could be now, it could be later, we don't know. But as they're delaying in their hearts, the Master's delaying His coming, in their hearts they grow unfaithful. The Bible says don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap if you faint not. Keep an eye on things. Watch out for the vines. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Watch out for those branches. Watch out for those places where the fruit can be born to make sure the little foxes don't mess it up. Look to Luke chapter 21 if you would. The Gospel of Luke chapter 21 In that, that book, he says the days will be as Lot there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, be careful that you don't end up with like Lot's wife, who looked back with longing eyes, looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, oh, I love living there. Even though it was a perverted place, I sure enjoyed my house there, and, and uh, I sure enjoyed my china cabinet and whatever, I don't know. But uh, there she turned into a pillar of salt. But now the Lord gives another warning to us about those little foxes. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, He says, Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, notice here, the cares of this life, and that the day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch out for those foxes where you start 
carousing, you start partying, you start dabbling again, and then you end up drinking, and then you end up becoming back in that sin you once came out of, back into that partying mode and that drunkenness mode. Or just you get concerned about the things of this life. You get caught up and just taken off guard. All of a sudden, some amoral thing becomes an immoral thing to you. Something that is just a hobby or a sport or something enjoyable, but yet it begins to consume your energies. It begins to consume your mind. It begins to consume your finances. And before you know it, it's this giant thing that's pulling you away from the Lord. Watch out for the cares of this life. And so he says, come away, my love, once. And he says, winter's done for you guys. Come on up and enjoy this wonderful time of singing. And then he says it again. Watch out, the fig tree, when it comes forth. And then he says again, rise up. And who is he talking to the second time? To those in the clefts of the rock. I believe Israel, who's now finished, that came to believe in Jesus the Messiah, are hid in that rock city of Petra. And now he says to all of us, watch out for the little foxes. Watch out for the things in these last days that can sidetrack you and keep you unprepared for that rapture of the church. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And he feeds his flock among the lilies. So she comes back and says, I hear you. I got it. Oh, I know that you're mine, Lord. I know that you're mine, Jesus. I know that you're mine, my husband. And I know that you're just going to keep blessing me and you're going to keep feeding me, that you're going to be a good shepherd just doing what you do and just being a, a tremendous blessing. But then, it says in verse 17, he speaks and says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like the gazelle or the young stag upon the mountains of Beth-er. Now the word Beth-er means separation. So now he comes to her and he says, Hey, it's day. Hey, before the sun starts setting, get up. <laughs> get out of bed. Stop delaying. Turn, he says. Turn. In other words, get out of bed. And he says, you're right, the gazelles and the young stags, they're running, they're leaping, come on up on the mountains with me. But yet, as we'll go, she turns around and she goes back to sleep. And in chapter 3, it's nighttime. Now notice here, the warning of the Lord. He says, wake up and don't get caught sleeping. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There, starting in verse 1, he says there, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now in verse 4 of Thessalonians 5, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep, there it is, as others do 
but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Here he says to the believers, Hey, you know what's going to come. You know what's going to happen. I don't need to reteach it to you. You've got the teaching. Of course, there's a humongous difference between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing, isn't there? And he says, Hey, you, you guys shouldn't be concerned because you're not of the night, you're of the day. It's not an issue for you. You're not like the world who's asleep. You're awake. But then he turns around and exhort them. Make sure you're of the day. Make sure you're not of the night. Make sure you're awake. Make sure you're not sleeping. Listen to the encouragement Paul tells us to give one another in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24... And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting, rebuking, getting in their face, face one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So he says there's people out there who have fallen asleep spiritually. There's people out there that are not walking as they should. And they are believers, but they've shrunk back. They're not where they need to be. Look to Ephesians chapter 5 on this same point, if you would. To Ephesians chapter 5, starting there in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of, what? Darkness. But rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he, Jesus, says to every one of us here tonight, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead. Maybe you've gone from sleep to death spiritually. Either way, Christ will give you light. See then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because... The days are evil. And the Bible talks about that in the last days, in 2 Timothy 3, that the days in the last days are going to be evil days. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so we see here that in the last days is going to be a time we need to say to one another, don't forsake the gathering together, my brethren. It's going to be a season we have to say to one another, don't get compromised by the cares of this life and the busyness of giving and taking in marriage of the days as they are evil amongst us and, and we stop, we just get tired of fighting the fight and we just want to lay down for a while and say, you know what, so let somebody else fight the fight. Let somebody else shout for a while. Let somebody else try to send this lost world. Let somebody else try to help out. And we come to that place where we say, man, I've got to take a break. 
Let's keep fighting the fight. Let's not grow weary in well-doing. And let's say to one another, we're not of the night, we're of the day. We're not of the darkness of this world, but we're of the light of the Lord. And cry out to Him, and He will give you light. Well, here, we see that His bride said, Ah, my beloved's mine, and I'm my beloved's, and He's faithful, feeding His flock, and, oh, His grace is so good. Good night. And she fell asleep. He kept telling her, rise up, get up, come on with me. Let's go leaping on the mountains together, you know. Let's, let's get vibrant here. Let's get alive. Let's get excited. Come on. But she goes back to sleep, and she sleeps all day long. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? And then you're wide awake, and now it's nighttime. I know when I've taken the various trips from one part of our world to the next. And when I didn't understand how to time myself so I'm on the clock of that place, I used to get there and, and sure enough, it'd be 10 in the morning, I'm ready to go to sleep because, you know, it's, it's 11 at night, my time. But I'd have to fight it and fight it and fight it. And if I said, well, I just want to take a little nap, all of a sudden, boom, you know, I'm out, I'm waking up at 8 o'clock their time at night going, hey, let's go, you know. What's the Lord doing in your life? And hey, you know, what's happening, you know? And, and it throws everything off when they're ready to go to sleep. And that really is a horrible feeling. But here she now wakes up at nighttime on my bed, and I sought the one I love. That's a horrible feeling, you know? It wasn't like she could reach over and turn on her nightlight, you know, like we can now. All of a sudden, it's pitch black, and she's going, Honey, are you here? Where are you? And he's gone. He's not there. He's not around. And so she gets up here at nighttime and she begins to seek him. And she did not find him. Now again, as we study this, this can be in three different types. This could be, again, they're having marriage problems and he's out sleeping on the couch. But again, she didn't listen to the promptings of her husband. She didn't respond. Or on the other side, he didn't respond. And they're having problems now. It's got to the place that they're, they're no longer together. And there is a separation. And when he's saying, come on, honey, she's cold. And now she's saying, where are you, honey? And he's cold. On the other hand, it's Israel in the tribulation period. Where now they discover, it says there in that three and a half year period when the Antichrist proclaims himself to be God, their eyes will be open. It says they'll look upon him whom they pierced. And it's going to be a very horrible time. And the Lord said, flee now unto Petra. And it's going to be a very yucky time to have to wake up out of your sleep spiritually and realize, oh my goodness, we rejected the true Messiah and we worship Satan. And they need to flee. And then third is believers who did not get themselves ready for the coming of the Lord as he said. And now they're waking up in the night. They're waking up when the rapture of the church has taken place. Turn, if you would, with me over to the book of Revelation. That's a real easy book to find. Right before the book of maps. Right before the book of concordance. 
And it says there in Revelation chapter 2, there in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now here is this woman. Now if you know the Old Testament, you know that Jezebel destroyed the temple of God, set up her Asherah and, and Bel worship, and, and killed all the prophets of God she could find. And so now, in the church, okay, is this immoral person who's in typology like Jezebel. She is causing people to commit sexual immorality. How? It tells us about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, that there's going to be those deceiving people concerning this, saying it's no big deal. God doesn't care if you fornicate. God doesn't care if you're immoral. It's no big deal. Shake it loose. Go on with your life. Don't feel guilty about it. And there he says, know that God's going to judge such a man. And he says, God has not called us in uncleanness, but in cleanness. And that's what the Holy Spirit's testifying of. But here is this woman. And even though, this blows my mind, even though she's not only a sexually immoral person and encouraging others to be sexually immoral within the church, and she's getting them to worship other gods, notice the Lord's response to her in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Think about that a minute. <laughs> Is God a God of grace or what? Why didn't he just say, and I'm going to blow her out of the water, you know, and I can't wait to wring her neck. He said, I let it go on for a season. I let it go on for a time. And why she was in the church, going about her sexual immorality, causing others to worship other gods, I let it go for a season, for a time, because I was hoping that she would repent. Radical. Of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Now listen to us. Listen to our situation as believers here, as the Lord speaking to us tonight in verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11 where there's those taking communion unworthily. And it says they were weak and sick and then finally they died because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. So she now at that second stage, where she's in the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm getting ready, listen, to cast them in to the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. That's a pretty radical statement. And he goes on to say, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. So he doesn't say the churches will know what's going on in the world, but the churches will know what's going on in the church. And Peter, it says, judgment must first come in the house of the Lord. And so again, this is a radical concept. That there's people that are believers but yet so backslidden that they're not prepared to be a part of that rapture of the church. And on in Revelation chapter 3, notice here on the flip side of that coin, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 8, 
He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you because you've kept my commands to preserve. Because you've kept my command to preserve, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one takes your crown. So he says, because you kept my word, because you didn't deny my name, because you've preserved, you've hung in there, you've had a little bit of strength, but you've remained faithful, he says, you know what? You're not going to go into that hour of trial. But he has to tell him. It's not, a, it's not a something that's automatically understood. It's not something that's for certain. It's something that he has to say. What, what strength you have, you're hanging in there. You can be comforted because you are perse- persevering. With your little bit of strength, you're hanging in there. You're not going to go into that great tribulation. You're not going to go into that hour of trial. And so here she is now been asleep. When he was saying, come. When he was saying, be ready. When he's saying, watch out for those foxes. Be ready. She's all going, oh, you know, the grace of God's so wonderful. You know, live and let live. I know I'm right with him because he's such a great God. And he's so wonderful. So, since he's so wonderful, I guess I'll just go to sleep spiritually. But now she wakes up in the night and he's not there. And she freaks out. And she says, oh no, where is he? And in chapter 3 of Song of Solomon, verse 2, I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares, and I will seek the one I love. And I sought him, but I did not find him. And the watchmen who go about the city found me, and I said, have you seen the one I love? She's all frantic, going, help me, guys. Can you help me find Jesus? And the reality was, is they can't. The reality is, guys, you, you know the truth. It's not more truth that you need. It's acting on the truth that you have. And they're like, you know, if you don't know where to find him, we're not going to be able to help you. But then finally in verse 4, scarcely I had passed by them when I found the one I loved. Oh, the rapture didn't happen. Whew. Have you ever had that kind of situation? <laughs> I remember back when I was in high school and, and one of the kids' testimony of, of getting saved was, was he had seen that uh, one of the end time movies, you know, the left be, one of the left behind back in those days. And he had saw it and, and he just did not want to give his life to the Lord. And uh, he was in his bedroom and he came into the living room. The music was on. The blender was going. The water in the sink was going. And he's like, Mom, where are you, Mom? Mom, where are you? And, you know, it was just a freaky scene, you know. And he goes in and he gets on his knees saying, Oh, Lord, please, you know. I, I'm, forgive me. I, I give my life to you. And then she came out of the garage. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is she had a scare. She had a scare. And it was a healthy thing. 
because she needed to wake up before the real thing happened. And she grabbed onto him saying, oh, this is never going to happen again. I am not going to let you go. And she just clung on and hung on and, and wouldn't let him go. And then she, her mom's house was nearby and she brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And so she just was there uh, hugging and took her on into uh, her parents' room. And, um, and, you know, at that point, they don't let us know what goes on. And she says in verse 5, once again, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So the same thing, remember back in chapter 2, verse 7? She starts to get into the romance of what happened in the bedroom in verse of chapter 2, verse 6. His left hand is under my head. His right hand is embracing me. Uh, okay, forget it. Um, I charge you, daughters of Gazelle, you know, don't stir up love till awakens. In other words, she, she says to the single gals that are there and her friend says, you know what, calm down, you know. Um, I'm not going to tell you anymore because I don't want to stumble you and I don't want to mess you up. Uh, you shouldn't even be thinking about sexual relations until you're ready to get married. And so just let it go back to sleep. Don't awaken those passions. Don't awaken uh, that aspect of your life until the, the timing for that to take place. Well, now in verse 6, Who is this coming out of the wilderness? like the pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants and the fragrant powders, behold, it's Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it, and all the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night of the wood of Lebanon. Solomon the king made himself a palanquin, or a, you know, a, a thing that they would carry the king on with the, the little shade above it, the little umbrella above it. I believe this here is a picture now of the coming of the Lord. And here he comes out of the sky at the end of that tribulation period. And here we all are coming with him. All us mighty, valiant men. The church is with them. And we're coming now as the valiant of the earth. The Bible tells us that we actually ride on horses, ascending into heaven, ascending out of heaven, coming down. And we're seeing this thing. And Satan's going to have to be taken and thrown into uh, the abyss. And all of those non-believers are taken. And, and there's that time of judgment. And we come as warriors and kings and priests unto our God. And there he comes, Solomon. Now the word Solomon, the actual root of Solomon, is the word shalom, where we get peace. And so the name Solomon can indeed mean peace. Here comes the king of peace. And here he is riding. And he has made himself the pillars of silver and its supports of gold and its seat of purple, its interior paved with love. I love that. Its interior paved with love. By the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of who? Zion, referring to Israel now. And see the king Solomon with the crown, which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. And so now the children of Israel are told to come out of Petra, to go on back to that place, uh, which is going to be New Jerusalem, and uh, to enjoy now with gladness uh, the one that they originally missed. The Messiah. And in chapter 4, 
now he is talking to this new bride of Jews and Gentiles in the millennial reign. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. There, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that God would open the eyes of our enlightenment. The eyes here, I believe, is, as we study the scripture, is representing the insight to see, that we now have the mind of Christ. Now we can now see into spiritual things and understand things as they really are. Behind the veil, we're no, even though we're in this body of flesh, yet behind the veil we can see things as they really are spiritually. Your hair is like the flock of goats. Now I wouldn't try this with your wife at home. <laughs> and here the hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. In other words, it has a little bounce with it. You know, hey, got a little wave there. Mount Gilead just east of the Jordan River, a beautiful lush green hillside. But as we study in the Bible, hair, number one, means consecration. Remember there the vow of the Nazarite. They were to never cut their hair. It was a sign of separation. It was a sign of consecration. And then we also see that hair was a sign of submission. In 1 Corinthians 11, he said women should have long hair, which is a sign in that culture of, of submission to their husbands and a heart of submission. Now Paul goes on in that same passage to say, if it's different for you, then let it go, but nevertheless have that submissive heart. And he goes on in verse 2, and he says, Your teeth are like the flock of shorn sheep, <laughs> which have come up from the washing each one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Boy, poetry has changed. <laughs> Honey, your teeth are like shorn sheep. It's like every one of them bears twins. <laughs> He's saying there... <laughs> I just I can't picture myself doing that, although although I, I do call my wife my dove, from Song of Solomon. I, I I don't say your you know your hair is like the flock of goats or anything. I, but here he's saying you got perfectly white teeth and and there's pairs for each of them. You got two center ones and two ones on the other side and two ones on the other side. That that looks really good. Nice white teeth and they're all even. You've got to realize, you know, we in America have been spoiled in our culture, in our generation because, you know, way back when they put fluoride in the water. In Hungary, they just started a couple years ago putting fluoride in the water. And in, when you go there, you see that most of the people's teeth are blackened or rotted. And so, again, in the culture that Solomon's writing in, I mean, hey, you know, you got five good teeth in your head. You know, wow, that's, that's, that's impressive, you know. Wow, you're, you're 30 years old and you have five good teeth? Wow. Man, you're something, honey. I mean, that's, that's the way the culture was. But here, it's like, hey, you've got all these wonderful teeth. Man, it's... That's amazing, a whole set of teeth. That's just so unusual. The Bible talks about those who can bite in 
to the meat of the word. To those who can chomp on the deep things of God. And bear fruit. Have a life fruitful of those deep things of the Lord. And then in verse 3. Your lips are like the strand of scarlet. In other words, nice and red. And your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. So here, (laughs) again, the, the lips. Remember those red lips he's talking about. Remember Isaiah. When he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, what did he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It was an understanding of a lack of purity in the life. And what did the angel do? He touched his lips and said, now you're cleansed. And we know from John chapter 12, that one that was high and lifted up was Jesus. And there that was all a prophetic thing of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, your mouth is lovely. Why? Because the word of God is not to leave our mouth. He said in Joshua chapter 1, don't let the word of God depart from your mouth. And then your temples or your cheekbones, they're nice and red, you know. They got that red look to them. Again, as the word of God does not depart from our mouth and we're constantly chewing upon it, where the blood is flowing and, and, the, and the blood vessels are, are there causing our, our face to have that look of healthiness because of the chewing on the word of God, not letting it depart from our mouths. And then he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory. (laughs) 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 On which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. You're saying, what in the world? You know, his wife's neck is a tower and all this... You know, all the shields are hanging on her neck. and Well, again, in those days, they did have the necklaces. Was a whole, her whole neck was covered as, as they had like a, a metal neck brace looking thing that they wore. But again, spiritually, the Tower of David. The tower was something that, again, as you, you go through the countryside and you see the tower sticking up, it's a, it's a serene view. It's a, it's a comforting view. It's saying, man, there's a city there, and it's a powerful city, and it's a fruitful city, and it's a prosperous city. And evidently, the tradition has it that the men of war, they had these big giant shields, that actually what they would do is hang them on the outside of the tower. And so when people would come and they would see the shields on the tower, they would know it's a place of peace. It's a place where they're right now in safety. But when the shields came off the tower, it's because they were using them because they were getting ready to go to war. And so your life is a life, as I look at it, of peace and of tranquility. It's a place of security and prosperity. And then in verse 5, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle, which feed among the lilies. You had no idea how I did not want to read that verse. You, you would be amazed how many guys I listened to on this passage and how they just skipped verse 5 like it wasn't even there. <laughs> Went on to verse 6. Oh. 
I could tell you some funny stories about that verse, but I, I won't. But um, Paul says, and <laughs> how are you going to pull this one out of there, Brian? I am one. Well, let's let's stop here, and we'll pick up here next week. No. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Paul says in First Thessalonians two seven. He says, I was among you like a mother who is breastfeeding. And he also says to Peter that, that, that they would have a heart looking for the sincere milk of the word. In other words, they just want the purity straight from God. And here he's saying to her that your life is fruitful. And there I, I look and it's, it's, you're such a fruitful person that those there are being fed from you. And Paul here is, uh, or Paul had said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, that that's the way I was amongst you. And he says to Peter, that's the way these believers are. They're just wanting that sincere milk. And so again, God is looking at us. And he is saying to us, man, I'm so glad about your eyes that you can see beyond the veil and see the spiritual things as they really are I'm really glad to see your hair, that consecration, that heart of submission. I'm so glad to see those solid teeth ready to bite into the meat of the Word. I'm so glad your lips now are scarlet. They've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And the Word of God is now in your mouth. And you're strong. And you're using your mind. And you're using your heart. And just feeding upon the things of God. That I look upon you and your neck and I just see a place of tranquility, a place of peace, a place of safety, a place that's at rest. And I see your life as one that's giving out, feeding others, being fruitful. Um, as again, that sight of, of the gazelles feeding their young. And now he says in verse 6, basically an Old Testament type of Philippians 1.6, until the day breaks and the shadow flees away, and I will go my way to the mountain of mirth and to the hill of frankincense. Which if you go back again to chapter 3, verse 6, that was the same imagery using in the coming of the Lord Jesus. When he says, the one coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, and then he gives the same description with mirth and frankincense and, and so forth. And so he says, this is who you are right now, what I see. Gosh, guys, it's so important that we see ourselves through God's eyes and not our eyes and definitely not the world's eyes and definitely not Satan's eyes. Because when I look in the mirror, I don't see what Jesus sees. But I've often discovered the way I look at my wife, she doesn't see herself in that way. I'll sit there and stare at her why she's in the morning, put it on her makeup or making breakfast or whatever, and I'll just stare at her. And I'm just thinking, what a beautiful woman you are. What a wonderful wife you've been. Of course, she's saying, what's wrong? What do I have on my face? What's in my hair? What's, what's, what's going on? You know, something's wrong. But no, it's, it's not. And the Lord's looking at us just saying, you are so beautiful to me. You are so precious to me. You are so wonderful to me and I'm so glad of what's taken place in your life and it's going to continue to be that way and basically until we see Jesus. 
The Bible said he who began that good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And there in verse 7, you are all fair, my love. In other words, the word fair is not saying you're okay, but oh, you're just perfect, so wonderful, my love. And notice here he says, there is no spot in you. And of course, that takes you immediately to Ephesians chapter 5, doesn't it? That the Lord will make for himself a bride without spot, without blemish, prepared for that day. And then he says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amanda, from the top of Sinar and Hebron, from the lion's den and from the mountains of the leopards. So notice here, again, now God is the God of the second chance. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 17? He said, come on, let's go skip on some mountains together. Come on, get out of bed. Let's go, let's go walking together. Now he's given her that invitation again. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a climb up in the mountains. This time, let's go up in a mount, on, on a mount, a, a, a manna and Sinar and Hebron, and let's go look in the lion's den there, and let's go look up in the caves, and let's go check things out. Come on, let's go again. So here she has now the second chance to come and to follow. And now he says to her, Oh, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. And guys, you need to remember that your wife is your sister before she's your spouse. She is the daughter of the Lord before she's your wife. And she's only your wife for a season. She'll be the daughter of the Lord for all of eternity. And so you need to remember who you're dealing with. And here he says, Ah, oh, my sister, my spouse, you have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love. Remember back earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, she says to him, your love is better than wine. But now he goes one step beyond that. He says, you're not better than wine. You're not uh, as much as wine, but you're much better than wine is your love. And the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Again, the Bible teaches us that our worship to God rises like incense. The Bible says that um, our prayers, again, come up as an incense before the Lord. It tells us in Revelation. And it also tells us in Proverbs that God loves to hear the prayers of the righteous. And here he's saying, oh, I love your scent of your perfumes. I love the spices. What is that? It's our worship and it's our prayer. And your lips, again, of righteousness. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Oh, of my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. And honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So sweetness and feeding comes from your mouth. It says in James chapter 1 that when we speak, it shouldn't be fresh water and salt water. But when we speak, it should be that fresh water. He said, how is it that one minute you can curse and the next minute praise God? He said it shouldn't be possible for that to happen. And now he's saying, oh, I look at your lips. Oh, I hear what's coming out of your mouth. It's sweetness. It's feeding that comes from you. And I look at the fragrance of your garments. Our garments are what? The righteousness of Christ. It's like the fragrance of Lebanon. And now in verse 12, he says, 
A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Boy, ugh. looking at the time and I'm wondering if I should try to race through this. This is just some of the richest parts of the Song of Solomon. Is right here in chapter 4, verse 12 through chapter 5, verse 1. And I think what I'm going to do is hold off right there. And we will pick up there next time in verse 12. But again here, as we go into this afterglow time, let's just stop and think a minute how precious is, how precious we are to the Lord, and how precious is the incense, the fragrance that we give off before Him of our worship and praise. Lord, we thank You for Your Word tonight. We thank you as you have instructed us that you would raise up shepherds after your own heart who would lead with knowledge and understanding. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And Lord, we thank you this night. We truly thank you for your word and how encouraging it is to see how precious we are to you. Thank you, God, that we're so lovely to you. We sure don't look lovely. Like she said earlier, oh, I'm dark, I'm black. I, I Don't look at me. Don't, don't stare at me. We often feel so sinful. We often feel so wrong. But yet we know that we're not. We're so right with you by your righteousness that you've given us. By the cleansing of your blood, we are clean like that bride, white as snow, prepared for the day of her wedding, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, without any such thing, we thank you. And Lord, we come before you now. And we ask in Jesus' name that you'd meet us here tonight. We thank you for the precious, precious time we had last Sunday night. And Lord, we know that there's all kinds of seasons you give us. Sometimes to be silent, sometimes to speak. Sometimes it's a mighty rushing wind and sometimes it's a gentle breeze. But either way, Lord, we want to be in your presence tonight. Meet us here tonight, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.